You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. Today's guest is someone likely familiar to most listeners, Mumbrella's own founder and editor-at-large, Tim Burrows. On Wednesday, his first book, Media Unmade, hits shelves, detailing the most disruptive decade in Australian media. The conversation was meant to focus on that alone, but on Monday morning, the news also emerged that Tim would be departing Mumbrella. In this discussion, he dissects some of the key parts of the book, explains his take on the current state of Australian media, and talks about the highs and lows of founding and running Mumbrella as he begins the final chapter at the company. He joins me now. Tim Burrows, somewhat surreal to be interviewing you for the Mumbrella cast. Um, I'll be up front. This was uh, my idea. I, I invited you many, many, uh, well, it feels like months ago now uh, to tie in with the book Media Unmade, which you've written and is on sale as of Wednesday. Uh, it's on sale now, really, if you want to pre-order it, but it's in on shelves on Wednesday. So thank you for being on the other end of the mic for the Mumbrella cast. It's just as surreal being interviewed, particularly for the Mumbrella cast. Yes, which I, yes, I guess I've been involved in for the best part of a decade. So yes, it is strange to finally be the guest. I've been racking my brains to try and figure out the hardest questions I can possibly ask you and uh, put you on the spot, which is a lot harder than I thought it would be with a book that is around 400 pages. There's a, a lot to get through. So I may as well ease into it for myself more than anyone uh, else. Um, you founded Mumbrella with, with Ian Wakely and, and Martin Lane, of course. You're known as one of the leading media and marketing journalists in the country. Why write a book as well? Oh, gosh. Um, it was, I suppose it was a bit of an itch to scratch because, you know, that old joke about journalists. One journalist says, I'm writing a book. The other one says, neither am I. So having previously attempted to write a terrible novel, which the world will never see, which I think there's only one chapter of anyway, um, that wasn't the route. And I just had a bit of an idea that, um, you know, as we, even as we got towards the end of, um, you know, let, let's say that the decade ended in 2020, that we'd seen so much change and, you know, written about a lot of it from Umbrella, that there was something to capture about the story that you don't get to in the day to day and the week to week. So it was in large part an opportunity just to go back and think about what the trends had been, you know, I guess to send the signal from the noise, you know, what mattered and what didn't. Um, and to try and tell, obviously it's a number of stories, to tell some of those stories um, in a longer form than we, we, we get to when we're writing, you know, every day or every week. How did you go through and actually remember those stories in the sense that we all know the the headlines, but getting into the depth that you got into in those chapters, the, the conversations that uh, that are listed there with, with the quotes and, and the very specific details, the dates, sometimes in, in the times in some cases, there's some real specifics on a lot of those big media challenges and news stories that, that came out. How hard was that for you to, to recall them and to make sure that you captured all of them? Do you know, a mixture of things. I mean, one of the things is, a lot of people were very kind with their time in terms of, you know, helping me check recollections or do new research and, 
you know, that included quite senior people in the industry, some on the record, some off the record. Um, and then one of the other great things about having done Mumbrella for the whole period we're covering, so the sort of the the disruptive decade of 2010 to, well, it became to 2021, so the 12-year decade, um, is for almost that whole period, we had the same email platform in Gmail. So I had a decade's worth of undeleted emails. So sometimes it was just incredibly useful just to be able to search and find an email from eight years ago of a, a press release or, you know, an internal conversation or when you'd emailed someone for comment, you know, you, so you weren't just looking at news stories that were online. Often there was raw material. And, and I suppose one of the things about writing a story that you were covering at the time is even if you can't remember the details, you can remember it happened in the first place. And you can kind of go and dig up the, you know, dig up the wider things. And like one example was um, at the start of one of the chapters, um, I just sort of told the story of, about um, the band Evermore uh, being the surprise guest at a Nova party. And um, there was a kabuki drop where they, you know, the curtain is supposed to drop and the bands, uh, the band is unveiled. And in fact, um, the curtain jammed. So people would just, and I was one of those people would take it in turns to go up and peek through the curtains at them. And this was, uh, this was, you know, just after Lachlan Murdoch had taken control. So it was, it was quite funny, but it sort of told a bit of a picture, but just, checking my recollections of something that happened a decade ago and if I remembered it right and who the band was and although I had written a diary column for, for, for Mumbrella with a Dr Mumbo the video I'd uploaded at some point since then the whichever YouTube account was associated with it had been deleted and I'd not even realized so so just tracking down people who worked for the radio station back then who could confirm that I remembered it right. Just things like that. So so often, hey, look, one of the things I've realized about a book is it's a great way to hide work because you can lose a day going down a rabbit hole and maybe add one paragraph. There are some fantastic old Mumbrella videos still available on YouTube for those who care to search it. You mentioned there before uh, the most disruptive decade in media, and I wanted to... Uh, talk to you about that because that is essentially the the key to this book as well. Um, what do you feel made it the most disruptive decade? Was it truly the most disruptive decade for Australian media? I suppose the first thing is probably since the 1950s, everybody always says the 10 years of the media we've just been through was the biggest change, whether it's, you know, the rise of television over radio or whether it's the, you know, death in the afternoon when the afternoon newspapers died or, you know, what, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the rise of, I guess, you know, sort of online, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess this was the decade where digital became dominant. And it forced the newspapers to change their business model. Um, and towards the end of the decade, it was when um, subscription TV streaming came through as well. So, so it was it was the decade where I think we swung away from an advertising led media to a user pays media. And also, it was the decade, and, and you know, I think for linked reasons where polarization came a thing like never before. 
Now, you, of course, moved from the UK to Australia, worked at uh, B&T, and, and then started uh, Mumbrella with uh, Ian and uh, Martin, as mentioned. Do you think if you had stayed in the UK, it would have been a, a similar story in terms of the most disruptive decade in, in media? Or did you essentially fly into what was a, a preeminent sort of decade for Australian media? Yeah, look, I... I think that's one of the things. I mean, a lot of, particularly for the first half of the decade, a lot of those media stories are Australian stories. You know, if we look at the battle for survival of nine, you know, particularly under David Gingell when it was right on the, the you know, on, on, the, on the brink of going broke before he sort of, you know, saved it from the banks, got it listed, handed it over to Hugh Marks, who then navigated you know, nine through its kind of sort of next phase into the streaming age. And of course, the merger slash takeover with Fairfax that saw it emerge as the biggest, co- the biggest company in the country. That absolutely was an Australian story. But I suppose the, you know, one of the other themes of the last decade has been more often than not, as we get towards the end of the decade, the big story or the big shift is driven by largely Silicon Valley based com- you know companies certainly US based companies so you know when we you know when we look at the streaming battles you know more and more we're going to see global dollars coming in for sports rights for instance here in Australia we've already seen the big beginnings of it with the likes of Amazon Prime playing in the sports space the likes of um Paramount Plus which is owned by um, Viacom CBS who also own 10 over here um, and of course Google and Facebook as the the big players alongside um, Amazon alongside Netflix so it, it does feel like the factors that will decide the future of the media in Australia will be more overseas at least for the next phase. I want to pull out a few uh, of the topics in, in the book, a few of the stories in the book, and it's very wide-ranging in terms of what you cover. So I'll try and, and weave a bit of a narrative through this, but uh, let me start with something that I, I feel is probably closer to home for you than, than some of the other uh, chapters in, in the book, and that's to do with journalism. Of course, you've got a deep journalism background. You came to Australia at a, a rather tumultuous time, for journalism, for quality journalism in Australia. Uh, it was a time where we were seeing major cuts from from main media, from the, the big publishers, uh, and it was a time where I think a lot of journalists were questioning uh, whether they had a future or not, whether there was a future I- indeed for media. Um, you know, you took almost 10 pages to, to describe the, the 2012 losses of quality journalism uh, at Fairfax, and you went uh, – into great behind-the-scenes detail of the processes of of bringing a story to the reader, which I thought was really, really interesting and really important because a lot of that gets left out. You know, we we talk about the loss of subs in particular and the loss of quality journalism and the loss of maybe the art of journalism, but actually having that process explained to people who maybe aren't journalists uh, is a pretty eye-opening thing. But do you think perhaps there's still a disconnect between media businesses and the process of journalism, what it really takes to bring to life the stories that we see in main media? Yeah, look, I think, you know, obviously that behind the scenes process has, 
has changed a bit, changed somewhat over the over the years. You know, I, I you know, as you say, I've been around journalism for a long time. My first job was. 1989 so I was there just just long enough or just early enough that I got to see the very final year or so certainly for my newspaper of manual typewriters you know in this sort of process where you would you know you you would write two paragraphs uh, on a on a kind of piece of folio paper with a couple of bits of carbon paper and your word processing was shuffling those bits of paper and then after you'd done that you know that it would just go through layers and filters a process, you know, so it would go to a, a chief reporter who would, you know, test you quite hard on the story or even before you started writing, you know, to check you'd asked the right questions and understood it before it then went on to a news editor who would sometimes work on that story deeply, other times pass it almost straight through to the sub-editors who again, you know, it might be through two layers of sub-editing, you know, sort of, you know, a downtable sub would do the sort of basics of it, and then it might go through a chief sub-editor as well, all before it goes off to the print works. And, of course, they are all layers that would catch mistakes and improve the quality of the writing and, you know, hone a headline, all of those things which don't, don't nat- you know, sort of naturally happen everywhere anymore. Um, and, of course, the thing is, you know, they'd improve the quality, but also very, very expensive layers. And, you know, there was a there was a point when you know, newspapers, you know, that cliche, the rivers of gold, were so lucrative, it didn't matter. But as the business model changed, it kind of began to. So, as you say, there was that week in June 2012 where one day of the week, um, Greg Highwood, boss of Fairfax Media at the time, stood up and announced 1,900 redundancies, printing presses closing, moving to compact rather than broadsheet size. And then two days later, Kim Williams, who was boss of News Corp at the time, announced another. Now, he didn't put the number to it at the time, but as I reveal in the book, it was 1,600 uh, more media jobs going. So 3,500 jobs in the space of two or three days, never been a worse day like it, and probably never been a sort of darker outlook for journalism. But then we come to the other end, we come to the end of this decade, and you know, as we've talked about in the Mumbrella cast a few times, the news media bargaining code came along, which was the the C's way of... Um, effectively uh, threatening Google and Facebook that they would have to pay news companies for the pleasure of linking to their content, which was something that hasn't really happened anywhere else in the world. And rather than sign up for that, Google and Facebook have been you know, agreeing to give huge amounts of money, certainly to the big end of town, and we're still waiting to see what happens for the small end of town. Um, but that has, at least in the medium term, guaranteed the outlook and the funding of journalism from the main media players so there's there's probably certainly in the last couple of decades not been a point where we could be more optimistic about the future funding of journalism than right now so so almost out of nowhere we we you know luckily for me i got a bit of a happy ending for for the book that wasn't even as i was in the writing process um wasn't always obvious how things were going to end and of course the other thing with the media is it never ends there's always another twist but certainly uh certainly right now you know thing things look maybe a little rosier and you know it was grubby but you know, also unexpectedly rosy now. Let me touch on that uh, shortly in terms of media's relationship with big tech because that's something that's really interestingly been weaved through the the book uh, as well and I think the last decade 
of that relationship has been up and down, um, probably starting more with downs than it, than it did and perhaps going for more downs and before we got to those ups. But I want to just quickly stay with the, the state of journalism, um, particularly when you came over. Was there anything that you saw in terms of how uh, the media companies were running publishing businesses that you thought was just such an obvious reason as to why they were in such strife, why the business models were, were failing. Was there a, a, an obvious fix or was this just one of those circumstances where it was on the down and nothing that anyone could have done could have really brought it back to life without what we've seen you know, towards the end of the decade? Look, one of the things about media companies generally, media bosses, is the more you understand about what was actually going on behind the scenes at the time and the reasons for these things, the the more you realise there aren't that many idiots or fools running media companies. You know, sometimes you see decisions from the outside or um, or, or lack of movement and you wonder what the hell were they thinking but then once you understand it you just you, you realize there were there were many bright people doing the best they could with the hands they were played and of course you know um particularly when you think about the big newspaper companies for instance they'd had it so good for so long and so much of their model was intrinsically around you know particularly uh, classified advertising that um it was very hard for them to adjust you know so i i i you know, I kind of think, you know, there's two or three bravura performances of the, of, of the decade. You know, I've already talked about David Gingell as one. And, you know, I think Hugh Marks would count in that as well for for nine. You know, we we, we, we talk about a, a bit in the book, well, a lot in the book about Anthony Catalano's journey as well. Um, you know, another kind of amazing performance. And then another one I'd say would be... Um, uh, HTE, Australian Radio Network, um, Kieran Davis. But um, one of the ones I talk about quite a lot is the way that Greg Highwood and Chris Jans at Fairfax saved newspapers, certainly saved their newspapers um, in a way that, hey, look, I, I, you know, it's fascinating to me because I don't think it'd really been talked about publicly before, but um, Project Blue, where the brief to Chris Jans and his team was we're probably going to have to get out of print. So go away and make a plan to save what you can. Um, so they opened up a secret office, which was in Surrey Hills. It was away from the mothership, which was was in Piermont. And they set out to figure out a new business model. And in the process, they figured out a way of saving the newspaper print model, you know, and effectively it meant taking out a lot of cost, um, but making it sustainable. So they had that sort of last final round of redundancies and I think it was 2017 and made the promise that that would be it after that, no more redundancies. And they were true to that word. And, you know, I, you know, I, I spent most of the decade feeling a bit sad that I would no longer to be able to read Sydney Morning Herald or the age or the Australian financial review in print and we can, and we will be able to for a number of years. And it was thanks to that work of quite a small team figuring that out. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. That was one of the, the more amazing stories I felt in the book, the, the blue team and, and the white team and, and Chris Jantz getting in there uh, with Greg Highwood's blessing and, and effectively coming up with a result that, that potentially he didn't even expect. Because as you say, it wasn't necessarily about saving print and, and saving a, 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 you know, a, a daily uh, metro newspaper or anything like that. How surprised were you that they actually managed to get to that stage and create a successful business out of it? Well, look, I think that was the thing because writing about at the time, the rumblings always were it was a matter of time before Fairfax was out of print. You know, to the to the extent that Greg Highwood as boss had had signaled at investor um, conferences that this was coming soon. You know, so he almost, you know, in the space of a year, almost had to revert, well, he did have to reverse his position, you know, effectively announced that actually we figured it out. And, and it, it sounds so obvious when you say it, you know, the most expensive thing about printed newspapers is the printing and the distribution. And Fairfax got out of that business altogether. You know, it, it, it closed some presses, it outsourced, um, when um, Fairfax, by the time Fairfax was bought by Nine, what remained of the print works was kind of mainly for the local and regional newspapers, which became Australian Community Media, which was then sold to Anthony Catalano and, 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 and his co-investors, and they took the print works with them. So it becomes a completely um, uh, non-fixed cost base system, you know, you print fewer newspapers, you pay less. So clearly there'll be a point where it's actually just not um, sustainable to deliver a newspaper to every part of the, you know, every part of the, of, of the country. But there's a lot more years in it now just because they, they've, they've, they've changed the cost base. That chat there of Anthony Catalano gives me a good opening to, to discuss personalities in the media industry. I think, uh, We've been following, obviously, the run of, of uh, the cat uh, quite closely lately. You speak about some of the the big, big famous names in, in, in media. You know, the, the Packers and the Murdochs and and other very high up players like Greg Highwood and, and people like that. Do you think we're at a time now where the I guess the old school idea of the media mogul or the the big influential media personality as media boss is is over now or um should we see more people rising up soon look i suppose one of the things i've noticed as well is as well as you know complaining that generally the golden days are behind us which has been something i've heard for most of the 30 or so years i've been 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 you know involved in journalism is people saying the characters aren't there anymore but then new characters come through so you know, I kind of, I, you know, I do think of um, someone like Anthony Catalano as the example of a, you know, a swashbuckling new character who takes risks. You know, he took his his big redundancy check from Fairfax at the start of the decade, invested it in um, uh, the weekly review in Melbourne, which was effectively a real estate play, you know, with his his understanding of how the real estate industry works, used it to threaten Fairfax's revenues in Melbourne, got bought by Fairfax, ended up running Fairfax's real estate play, helping float Domain, which which along with the investment in Stan, which was a co-investment with Nine, saved the Fairfax share price, 
then fell out at the other end with his chairman, Nick Falloon. In, um, again, a, a scene I certainly found quite amusing, which I get to write about in the book when he, he gives, gives Mr. Falloon some very specific advice, uh, in their last meeting. Um, and then ends up buying Australian community media and, and becoming the, you know, the, the, the most recent, uh, media mogul. Do you expect that we'll see him become far more influential in this decade? Where we're sort of moving away from the decade that the book covers, but while we're talking about uh, the cat, what do you expect that we'll see from him? You know, in the, in well, the- I, I found myself keep having to update the the the, the, the final chapters as as you know, Anthony Catalano sort of derailed Seven's attempt to merge with uh, Prime, effectively take over Prime as its kind of regional affiliate partner, and then up his stake in it in sort of literally as the book was going to press you know he moved up to 20 percent. so we still don't know what that means but clearly there's an ambition to being as big in the regions as nine is in metro now long way to go yeah and you know there are some people who say well you know could he be a bit of a one-trick pony who only understands real estate we'll see because um it's still in play at the moment but um you know he's got a lot to prove but so far when he's had a lot to prove in the past he's 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 actually succeeded. Let's talk about proving things and succeeding, uh, and that'll lead into a bit of failure as well. Let's talk about Nine, because the decade that you've covered on Nine has been a fascinating story for them, on the brink of, uh, of going under, and now obviously the most successful media company arguably that that we see uh in australia right now that's a big change in fortunes uh a lot to do with, with the goings on the cvc at the beginning of, of the decade into the middle of the decade and then a, a few people coming in and playing roles david gingell adrian swift hugh marks um how did you see the i guess regathering and regrouping uh, of nine who's who should we be congratulating for the position that nine finds itself in now yeah look i i think about when i first came to australia 2006 as the editor of bnt and it was this bizarre situation where a game show host for the ceo eddie mcguire was the ceo at that point which just seemed quite strange to an outsider, I have to say. And I, I remember going along for a, it was like a, not, not an upfronts thing, but it was a mini trade press thing. It was like in the nine boardroom, you know, not many of us. And I'd only been, been in the country a few weeks and it was, you know, the sales director at the time, Peter Wiltshire was doing it. And at that point, Mia Friedman was, was, was in charge of effectively sort of what, uh, it, <laughs> It wasn't quite labelled that. I think she had like creative head of creative services or something. But you know, was a she'd been hired to bring more of a female focus to daytime television, um, and she was in on it, and not many others. And it just it felt like a network. Just walking in, it felt like a network that was old. Like just you walked in, and it felt dowdy, and you know, it was it was their Willoughby offices, which was had seen better times anyway, and. You could just tell it doubted itself at the time. I've got to admit, it was one of those points in the book uh, of many where I did go, my God, did that actually happen? That actually happened. Eddie McGuire was the CEO of Nine. Yeah, absolutely, for a relatively short period of time. And, of course, it was, 
you know, it was a it was a little bit of a sort of battlefield promotion in the, you know, the the Packers had sold, as you say, to CVC, um, private equity, and um David Gindor got tired of interference. He'd gone overseas and he'd been the natural successor and it drifted. Um, and it was really troubled and ratings were troubled and it just all the, you know, nine had been the one for so long and had been in winning ways. They just didn't know how to deal with it. And of course, at the same time, seven had turned a corner. Um, David Leckie was kind of back then uh, still just about at the height of his powers. Australian audiences were still willing to watch American television and seven just got really lucky in the, in one season. They got Grey's Anatomy and they got Lost and Desperate Housewives, three massive shows in one season that, that turned around the whole network's fortunes. And at the same time, you know, nine lost its way. And then it just got to that point where it just couldn't find a hit and it kept doing you know, disaster after disaster, local, local comedy wouldn't work, local drama wouldn't work. Um, but, you know, one of the things from television is it, sometimes it does just take a single hit to turn it around. And in the end for nine, it came with the voice. And in that, do we perhaps underestimate, uh, I guess, the influence that Adrian Swift had on the the beginnings of the recovery of nine? Because, of course, he played a large part in the success of The Voice and kind of what set Nine up on that trajectory uh, of slow growth and growth and growth, then the the, the purchase of Fairfax, of course, and, and then where we see it today. We don't talk a huge amount about uh, Adrian's contribution uh, to Nine and then how that played in uh, to the rest of the players in, in the company. Well, look, it was certainly one of the, one of the things I enjoyed in the book was talking to Adrian about how um, Nine tempted him to to, to come back to the organisation because he, you know, he was, I think he thought his future probably lay in creating branded entertainment. Um, but yeah, liked the the voice format and came back. And then, yes, being in, in Michael Healy, the head of television's office, waiting for the ratings to come and uh and then them coming in and um well i don't want to spoil too much about the book but there was quite a quite a, a touching moment um but i think one of the things is not just under ginge you'll help them find the mojo and 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 set their way back um one of the things about hugh marks who succeeded ginge was he just created this army of really talented executives which actually you you know if you look at the equivalent organization at news corp you do get that there as well but at nine it felt like there was so much strength in depth that to the extent that when hugh marks left and again i guess it was a neat sort of ending for this you know towards the end of the story for the book as well there were so many in strong internal contenders you know it came down to one external and two internal but there were a good five or six people internally who they would not have been crazy to give the job to certainly not as crazy as the time they gave it to eddie mcguire so that was a real compliment to hugh marx's management style that all of these executives had developed so well and stayed with the organization for so long. You know, I, I'm not sure that we'll, we'll look over that five years where, where Hugh Marks was there, and I'm not sure we'll ever see a single large media organization run as well as it was in that period. 
Let's quickly talk about that as well. How crazy were they to give the role to Hugh Marks when he was hired? He wasn't uh, arguably the obvious candidate. Look, it was a surprise to the outside world at the time. But then when you thought about it, it kind of made sense. You know, he'd managed talent. And that actually was a really important thing. And not, I'm talking about talent executives as well as on-air talent. You know, that he's saying sort of good people are tricky, um, which, you know, which was something that sort of um, came up when, you know, when I, I previously interviewed him. Um, he had a, 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 a legal training as well. Um, and he'd been around television for a long, long time. And of course, you know, in good succession planning, he'd also been on the board of Nine for a little while as well. So... Um, so yeah, so look, he kind of, he, he was a surprise to the outside world, but he was also quite well prepared for it and probably more so than, than people realized. So I alluded to one of the negatives coming out of, um, the whole nine CVC saga as well. And one of those, as it turned out, was the sale of ACP to the Bauer family, which at the time seemed to the outside world like a great thing. You wrote in July 2020 one of the opinion pieces in Mumbrella that will probably stick with me forever with the title Good Riddance to the Bowers, the family that wrecked Australia's magazine industry. Let's go from the beginning of that saga. I'm a magazine journalist by trade and it's very close to my heart, the art of magazine journalism, which is all but dead at the moment. How did you feel when Bauer made that acquisition? Did you think it was a good thing? Look, at the time, it seemed like probably good news, certainly for the staff, because Bauer was a really, and is a really big media company in Europe, particularly around magazines. And it's usually much better to be owned by someone who wants you than someone who doesn't. And CVC, I think, you know, once the uh, the, the um, global financial crisis had kicked in, knew that they were in trouble. The problem for Bauer Media, though, was their model in Europe was so much about mass circulation magazines with really high distribution numbers. And hey, some advertising too, which was nice, but that way round. Whereas the model in Australia was still the other way around where advertising was a much more important component. And just ACP wasn't terribly good at that for a long time or Bauer as it became wasn't very good at that for a long time. They, you know, they, they lost the trust and belief of the advertising base, not just direct advertisers, but also the media agencies. And they didn't really, as there was more and more bad news about magazine circulations going down, they didn't do anything to counter it. And as a magazine industry as a whole, not just uh, Bauer, but also Pac Mags, as it was, which was owned by Seven West Media at the time, and um, news magazines that then became News Life Media. They weren't good at coming together as an industry to promote themselves to advertisers as a credible medium. Um, and that was at a time when lots of the other media, whether it was Outdoor Media Association or Think TV or Commercial Radio Australia, were. So advertisers just really forgot that they were there. You know, media agencies are quite fad-driven, quite young uh, you know, sort of young staff level. So there just wasn't enough done to persuade them of the value of the medium. So 
it, um, it declined faster than it needed to. Did the Bauer family, the Bauer business, do anything positive for the, the magazine industry or, or the media industry in general in Australia? Look, I, I want to try to be fair and to think of something, but I'm honestly struggling. You know, I mean, they, they churn through CEOs. They tried sending people from overseas. You know, I think the perhaps the biggest single mistake they made was, you know, it, it, it was at a time when, you know, because the, the, you know, Bauer Media was a multi-generation family. So Yvonne Bauer hadn't been in charge for very long. And it certainly looks from the outside as if Nick Chan, who was one of the most experienced executives, he'd been really senior at ACP, then he'd gone away to Pac Mags, then he came back. He could have been the saving, but he didn't last much longer than a year before leaving in what, you know, he was quite polite what he said at the time, but clearly frustrated that he couldn't get the backing to do what he felt was needed to be done. So that that was probably the moment I think once they let him go all was probably lost from that point onwards let's talk about business models a a, a bit more but take a a little bit of a sidestep one of the things that you're passionate about is the subscription model and uh, particularly newsletters uh, as well Uh, there's a chapter uh, called polarizing paying and staying and that kind of tracks the progress of News Corp and uh, some of the more successful subscription uh, businesses within the family that that they have. But um, let's go back to a base level on the subscription model. Who's doing it well at the moment? Look, if there's one thing to give massive credit to Rupert Murdoch is that he started talking about people paying for digital news long before anyone believed it would be possible. Um, you know, he... You know, he saw saw around corners a number of times, and that was one of them. And you know, arguably, News Corp definitely with the Australian and maybe with its tabloids uh, in other parts of the world, with the Times in, in 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 the UK and with the Wall Street Journal in the US, has made subscriptions work. So, you know, there are there are others who've done done it really well. You know, people talk about. Um, the New York Times, for instance, you know, outside of the News Corp sort of group. But, you know, on a global level, I don't think we can think of anyone, you know, who's done better than News Corp at getting people to pay at scale. Um, you know, it's been a real slog and, the you know, the, the dollars will never be the same as they were in the glory days. But, um, again, it was real vision and I suspect it was something that not even his own people really believed, certainly not a lot of them. As you say, we've got some good examples globally, particularly in the States. In Australia, do you think that media companies can fundamentally shift the expectations of consumers and make them or encourage them to pay for for media at a bigger rate than they are now? Look, I mean that that is an ultimate question. One of the very the video is somewhere on YouTube. One of the very first uh, Mumbrella question times. So maybe in two thousand and nine, we 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 did a panel asking that question. Then one of the questions that came up was, "Will people pay for? Um, will, will people subscribe to online news?" And um, I still remember uh, Mark Holden, who at the time was um, head of strategy at media agency PhD, now he's in a global role, kind of just saying, yeah, 
but the question is how many and that still is exactly the question and I kind of you know remember the surveys at the time will you pay and it was maybe five percent of people saying yes but actually five percent of people um paying a significant amount is a very healthy business model um and it becomes a marketing challenge now over the years media companies have not always been terribly good at marketing because they haven't needed to be only they do now so that's been one of the biggest adjustments over the last decade is um is getting better at marketing subscriptions in this case hey you know like the example i've used a lot is at some point you know at one point years ago um you couldn't be persuaded to you know, get more than an instant coffee, but then Starbucks came along and we were willing to pay, you know, $3.50 or $4 or $5 for a cup of coffee. The same marketing trick has gradually been learned for um, uh, digital subscriptions to news. So it can be done, but just takes good, you know, good, um, good marketing. And, you know, one of the arguments is, I think, certainly in Australia, if you look at the two players, News Corp was better at marketing than Fairfax for a long time. Um, and that gave it a bit of an advantage. I think, you know, both sides have become a lot more sophisticated and professional in the years since. So, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think people can be persuaded to pay. And of course, you know, the if there is a downside for society, it's that people often want to pay for something that reflects their views, whether it's when they subscribe to the likes of Sky News or Fox News in the US or, you know, newspapers polarizing pays. And, um, you know, so it's not just some sort of whim of Rupert Murdoch because that's what his politics tend to be. It's also a rational business decision as well. Um, unfortunately, when you kind of combine that with the polarization that comes out of social media you know the way the algorithms on twitter or on youtube or on facebook tend to drive the contentious conversation you get the sort of things that happened at the at the capitol in the us on january the 6th when you know effectively there was an attempted insurrection because people have been whipped into this frenzy by misinformation and polarization so there is a real danger for society of this trend paying for news the value of news misinformation great time to go back to big tech google and facebook um now one of those uh, much like the uh, lightning bolt of, wow, Eddie Maguire was the CEO of Nine. Of course, that happened. Now I remember it. The name Stephen Conroy got me in that sort of similar uh, mindset. Oh, yeah, Stephen Conroy, communications. I remember all the NBN discussions and uh, the discussions around back then, uh, Google, Facebook, uh, the influence that those platforms had and media businesses working with them. Um, to try and figure out how best to keep those audiences coming in, but obviously doing a bit more fairly. As you mentioned, we've gotten to a stage now where it was a happy ending for the Media Unmade book. But um, take us back to the beginning of that decade and the relationship between uh, big tech and media. Uh, did you at any stage then think that we would actually get to a happy ending uh, maybe that quickly? <laughs> Look, I um, I think a lot of commentators, myself included, 
owe Stephen Conroy something of an apology. So he was the communications minister then. And and because he was trying to create this effectively an internet filter, I think the kind of um, the kind of the more sort of freedom loving internet champions began to see him as a bit of an enemy. And then when he was so, it seemed at the time, paranoid about the likes of Google and Facebook and uh, the challenges they would offer to privacy, he painted himself into a bit of a corner where everyone was nudged in the Google and Facebook camp. Um, and yet he was right about a lot of this stuff. You know, I, I, I think, you know, a lot of these big companies are hard to trust. Um, you know, I think Facebook in particular, time and time again, you know, its shtick has been, we're so sorry about this thing we've just done that happened to massively advantage us. We promise not to do it again, you know, and then it's kind of like, like we said last time, we're not going to do it again. Um, so I, I, yeah, I do, I do think looking back now, like Conroy was a figure of fun, you know, there was the, the whole fake Stephen Con- Conroy character on Twitter. Um, but I think actually he was more right than he was wrong. And do you think that media now, journalism in particular, is in a healthier position because of this investment of funds from Google and Facebook? Do you expect good things moving forward? Look, overall, things are certainly rosier in terms of the business model. Um, now, so far, because of the kind of mechanism of, of you know how the ACCC did it, it's tended to favour the big end of town. Um, so we'll have to see whether that support comes through for the lower end of town. And, you know, you see other models come through as well. You know, the Judith Nielsen Institute has got some serious money behind it as a philanthropical thing. And again, so far, that's tended to favour the big end of town. Now, I think they're talking about sort of, you know, uh, hyper-local journalism, which is the part of journalism where there is no established model right now, you know, where where things are, are falling away faster than they're being replaced. Um, so I, I I think at the big end of town, there's reasons to be optimistic for the future funding of, of, of journalism. But, you know, whether we'll ever find our way back to the days where there's a journalist sitting in every council meeting and covering every court hearing and just being their community's eyes and ears... I don't think that model has emerged yet. And that's, you know, that's that's a kind of hidden tragedy, really. A good question in my mind to round out the discussion on media unmade uh, would be uh, one of the topics that sort of run through the book like a, a bit of an underground watercourse. It keeps just flowing and, it, and it's there in every chapter really is uh, media concentration, something that we've talked about or it's always been talked about in this industry. Uh, and obviously the changes we've seen over the last decade have changed that conversation substantially as well. Uh, broad question, Tim, is the media in Australia too concentrated as it stands today? Look, I, I like the quote from Eric Beecher when he was given a walkley for services to journalism, so the, the owner of Crikey, former News Corp and Fairfax editor, where he said, you know, he's got nothing against the media proprietors. There just aren't enough of them, you know. And I think the for the rise of 
the independence for the rise of the international players in Australia, the chances are people will probably be most likely to see or be influenced by a piece of journalism which has come either from the Nine Stable, from the News Corp Stable, or maybe from the ABC. And that's a pretty narrow group. And that's probably not great for society. Now, it'd be remiss of me not to mention the fact that uh, on Monday morning, uh, we heard the news that you would be stepping away from Mumbrella, the business you founded uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, firstly, congratulations on on the impressive innings and, and, and arguably the more impressive feat of actually running a successful media business, of which very few people can uh, suggest that they've done uh, at any stage. Um, tell me the best and worst things that have happened to you as the business owner of Mumbrella over the last decade and a bit. <laughs> well, firstly, and uh, thank you for the kind words. And as you say, you know, Martin Lane and Ian Wakeling were on a big part of that journey before we sold as well. Um, best things and worst things. Um, look, I think the best thing about being a journalist and regardless of having had a hand in running the business and that sort of thing is you get, firstly, the media world is one of the most interesting beats to write about and every day is different. So that's, that's the incredibly gift is there have been an incredibly small number of days over the last nearly 13 years where I've been bored. I can, I'm not sure I can think of any really that, you know, nothing interesting has happened. So that's a real gift because, you know, um, not everyone's lucky enough to go to work and have that 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 be their experience. Worst thing, um, oh gosh, um, hey, look, you know, you get bad days in the office when when good people leave that you wish could have stayed, when you get writs, um, you know, sometimes it's just you you still hate getting beat by the opposition when it happens. Um, so yeah, look, I, 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 you know, been very fortunate because the good days have far outweighed the bad days. You mentioned never getting bored, or very rarely getting bored. Uh, in the book, close to the very start of it, you recollect a time where you're at, uh, I believe it was Sydney University in the loading bay, which uh, you admit you shouldn't have been chasing a, a story. Um, Will you miss those days of going to those sort of lengths to chase down a, a story and, and bring something big to the reader? Will you still be doing it perhaps in the future? I was about to say, who says I won't get to do that in the future? That's a note to all the media companies to, to lock up their loading base. <laughs> well, Tim... I, I do hope that, that I uh, get to bump into you more often uh, than not in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure the, the last four years that I personally have had at, at Mumbrella working di directly with you. Um, and I'm sure I speak for the, the whole of the company as well in terms of uh, thank you for what you've done for Mumbrella. But also, more to the point, Media Unmade, it's on bookshelves on Wednesday. It's the thoroughly good read in my very humble opinion. Uh, so do make sure you pick up a copy of that. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella cast. Well, Damo, thank you. And um, as, as I, I, I work the final few weeks of my notice till the end of July, hopefully we will yet get to do three or four more uh, Mumbrella casts together. Look forward to it. Cheers, Tim. 
that was Tim Burrows, founder and editor-at-large of Mumbrella and the author of Media Unmade. Stay tuned on Thursday for the regular Mumbrella cast featuring the latest news and an interview with Optus Sports' Clive Dickens. That's it for this week. I'm Damien Francis. Thanks for listening. Thank you.